Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series. And always, it's sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And Job Creators is hard at work trying to promote policies that help and aid Main Street businesses across this country. Big businesses are well represented in Washington, D.C., and often they're trying to thwart the efforts of small ones. And big versus small is a big theme on this show as is up versus down, and always we're fighting for the little guy and for those small business owners across this country on Main Streets trying to turn their little businesses into bigger ones. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely know, my pillow founder, Mike Lindell, but you likely don't know his full and remarkable story. People always say, how ironic, you were a cocaine addict and you invented something to sleep. In 2008, um, my dealers, they did an intervention on me. I get downtown Minneapolis and all three of them are in the room. I go, what are you guys doing here? Now I'm in a worst part of Minneapolis in, in the one guy's apartment, in Joe's second apartment. I said, you guys know each other? I'm up for 14 days or, you know, they said it was 19, it's 14. <laughs> and uh, the one guy says, he goes, he goes, what am I here for? And he goes, he goes, well, Mike's been up 19 days and we're shutting him off. And, and uh, I said, I've only been up 14. And he says, you've been with us the whole time. You know, they all, they all you know, knew I hadn't slept. And the one guy leaves, he says, he ain't getting nothing from any of my people or me. And he was just disgusted and left. And they, before he left, though, he goes, you made a promise to us. Because all the time when I'd be doing drugs and stuff, I would always promise them this is a platform that's going to help. When I quit, I'm going to come back and, they, and help everyone, you know, get out of this horrific addiction and everything. There were many times I was in crack houses or bars, whatever, and I would talk about Revelation, which I read about when I was ever in jail. You know, every time I was in jail, I'd read the Bible. About the only time I would, you know. And so I'm telling these guys, well, they would quit that day, the next day. Like 28 people quit all through my life. I'm going, well, what did I say? And they go, I don't know, but it sure made sense. Well, normally you would think it's a hypocrite. Yeah, this is really bad. Give me another line, you know. And and they would they would listen. But all that time, it was me telling them, trying to convince myself, you know trying to convince myself whether it would be Jesus or whether it would be to get off the drugs. It was me trying to convince myself. So anyway, these guys are in the middle of this intervention thing and the one guy kicks the other guy, Joe, out of his own apartment and he sits there in a the chair next to me, says, how much you have left? And I had, I don't know, enough to probably uh, last an hour or so. And he sits there and, I, and now I, I run out and I'm scraping the pipe. Anybody that's on crack out there, you're scraping the residue out of the pipe and re-smoking it and trying to, then you're looking on the ground all over the carpet trying to find pieces you may have dropped over the last few days. And it's horrific. And then uh, anyway, I look over and he's asleep. So I head on down to the streets. I'm the only white guy down there. I'm, and they're going, you ain't getting nothing from me. You're not getting nothing from me. And, and I mean, all these things they're saying, I'm going, how do they know it's me? And all, my buddy, Joe, that he just, he goes, yeah, he goes, Mike didn't realize we told him, you know, if a, if a crazy white guy comes down with a mustache, you know. <laughs> so Joe just told this story the other day, and he, because he works for, now he's a Christian, he works for my company. And he, so anyway, I get back to the room, and I defeat it, and I get in there, and, and uh, he's sitting in the chair, and he says, uh, how'd that work out for you? And I said, I was so mad, and I said, you know, it was like 2.30 in the morning, 3 in the morning. And he goes, he goes, give me your phone. He says, you're gonna take, you're gonna take this picture. You told us you're gonna write a book. You're gonna need this for your book. It's like, think of someone on 14 days in a mugshot or whatever, but it times that by five, you know. 
Mike believes that his drug addiction was all because of his parents' divorce. 100%, 100%. Everything in childhood, everything in childhood, trauma, everything affects it, manifests to addictions, manifests to personality disorders, a divorce, but a divorce, a fatherlessness, it affects everybody. This was not known back then. I mean, it was very rare, you know. My mom and dad divorced when I was seven. I was nine days into second grade, brought to a new school. Um, I was the oldest child, so I was babysitting at seven. It was uh, to fit into the new school. I, you know, I did a lot of crazy things to, you know, climbing out a moving bus window to show off. And uh, I worked at a drive-in the movie theater. And the drive-in movie theater was voted the best job to have in the 1970s. One time I remember climbing up the back of the screen and on these little rungs, and me and my buddy that worked there were gonna moon the crowd. And we stand up there, we're 160 feet off the ground, and I'm afraid of heights, we hang onto the screen, and now I couldn't get back up, and I'm gonna fall to my death, and my, and my clothes fall off, my pants fall off, so he's helping me trying to get back up, and he gets me back up, and I just petrified climbing back down. Of course, the police were waiting at the bottom, and they're going, and this is the 1970s, they're going, he goes, uh, my manager's there, he goes, these guys work here. He goes, oh, this, you know, and the guy, they go, you get back out there, don't do that again and get your clothes. I mean, that was it. But you look back now, I'm going, you know, all those people watching, he goes, is that part of the movie, you know? And uh, I did a lot of different things like that. And I know a lot of it was, uh, was out of boredom, you know, um, just things to do. I wanted, you know, just excitement, even though I, even though I get myself into trouble, it was exciting and it was challenging getting out of trouble, you know? <laughs> Mike went on to college, although he didn't know why. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I talked about maybe being a lawyer, you know, and all these different things, but I didn't know what I wanted to be, and it was like, that was the thing to do, go to college. And I had, I, I didn't go to class. I went to class twice. I was working two jobs. My roommate's going, uh, what are you even here for? And I would just go take the test and still get C's at not even doing anything. And that was the year of the uh, Iranian uh, crisis, the hostage crisis. And as soon as that happened, I used it as an excuse. I'm out of here. The you know, world's coming to an end, or whatever. I'm, I'm going to go have fun. Why is God? You know, I just thought it was a waste of time. I mean, I'm going. It's a repeat of high school. These things in my whole thought process. Why do you have to go four years of this um, general college and then to be a, a doctor or a lawyer, or whatever you want to be? And that bothered me. I'm not going to sit here and waste my time. That's the way I thought. So he put his attention elsewhere. Working at the grocery store, I got heavy into illegal sports betting. And I uh, was betting with some very bad people on sports and I ended up owing them a lot of money and they came to my trailer and left a note. He said, if you don't pay by tonight, things are gonna get very physical. That night I went to work at the grocery store and I told my manager, I said, Lenny, I said, if." If anybody comes through the door here and looks like they might be in the mafia or whatever, looks like he's, I say, we say Mike telephone line three. We only had two telephone lines. I wasn't even there three minutes. And I said, and I hear Mike telephone line three and out the back door I went and I went and got their money the next morning and paid them. Little things like that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and more on this remarkable story, Mike Lindell's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We return to our American Dreamers series, this time Mike Lindell. And we return at this point. He's dropped out of college. He's working at a grocery store and for the owner's son, who was his manager. I had been uh, fired. It was union. I'd been fired I don't know how many times the union got my job back or, or his dad did. And uh, it would always be over stuff that uh, I didn't like his rules. And he goes, if you don't like it, you know, get your own company someday and make your own rules. And there were so many things I didn't like as an employee back then. And I've, I've changed a lot of that now to my own company yeah. where to make things better. And he, he said the, the final the thing he did that where he finally fired me, I was, I was on five different schedules. And one of them I knew I was probably on, but I didn't want to look at it because I was seeing my cousin that I hadn't seen in years. <laughs> And uh, anyway, the next day I come in and he's working to me. He says, you've been suspended indefinitely. And I said, I don't, what does that mean? I, I like, like, you know, I didn't realize that you're done, you know. I didn't know what the words meant. And uh, so I said, yeah, we'll see about this. So I went to his dad and he, say, he looked at me. He says, Mike, I'm not, I'm not getting behind you this time. He says, you're destined for bigger things. He says, you're going to look back someday and see this was meant to be. And he says, you can't be a lifer here, even though, and, and they had both told me I'm one of their best employees, but I just had problems. And uh, I'll never forgot them words. I looked back and it wasn't too long looking back going, well, you know, while wow, that had to happen, or I might still have been there for years later, you know. But it would take more than one incident to really kick in Mike living a real life. My fifth year reunion with my class, everyone's now is out of the college. They get these amazing jobs. They've started families, or they've kept with the same company since high school. In my mind, they were way ahead of me. And it was very, it was bothering me inside. And then it was just uh, going, wow, everybody's ahead of me. And I'm doing stuff to show off. And I'm, you know, I got into, you know, I was a card counter. Then I took a card counting class, professional card counter. But I hadn't even started it yet or whatever. I just threw it at the class. So I'm, I'm bragging it at the reunion about skydiving with a parachute not opening and my car accidents and my, you know, card counter, things that they've never seen or the mafia coming after me, you know, so I'm blowing their minds. And so we don't get on the topic of, uh, yeah, how you doing for work? How you doing? Uh, you know, what are you doing, Mike? How many kids you got? How many, know, how's your family? You know, I'm just completely putting up this wall, you know, for these other things. And so they're all thinking I'm nuts basically. But it was a very, it was, that starting there was a very much a driver, and it was like I, there was a lot of. Now it started to be shame, you know. I'm going, you know, this is, this is not who I can be. And then I prayed. I said, you know, God, all I want is to meet the right woman and have, you know, kids and and uh, you know, be the the white picket fence, so to speak. And then God brought that all to me and handed it to me on a silver platter. Until Mike jeopardized his answered prayer. By then I was a very functioning cocaine addict too. I look back and I'm going, oh, it was perfect. Well, no, there was a lot of dysfunction, even though it's hard to, for the addiction to, to hide it all the time. The kids didn't even know then. That's how good I was. I mean, it was a lot of work hiding the, the cocaine and then, the, and then crack. The kids didn't know, okay? Even like neighbors, let's give our kids, you know, send our kids over there because we were the fun, you know, this is back in the, you know, when they were younger and was with cocaine. But then when the crack came on, that took us down fast when the cocaine turned into crack. And, and the kids, 
My daughter at that time, when we, we got right when it all kind of blew up, uh, she says, we're very dysfunctional family. I go, I don't know what that means, but don't ever say that again. We're not dysfunctional. It's a swear word. What do you mean? What? It sounded just horrible. I didn't know what it really, really meant, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so that don't sound great. But I lost it all. You know, I eventually lost it all. And in the midst of a lot of this dysfunction, Mike was already running my pillow. I tried every pill. Even when I was 16 years old, I bought one of my first paychecks, went to buy a pillow at that grocery store I worked at. This teenager spent $70 on a pillow. That would be $287 in today's money for a pillow. So I spent the most expensive pillow thinking it would be the best. It was a down pillow and it was the worst because, you know, I know now they just sell us air. I mean, I mean, how can that be? It feels good, down it goes, but I couldn't return it. That I do remember. They would not let me return that pillow. But then throughout my life, I'm trying different pillows and I always had problems with sleep and wake up in the morning with headache, neck ache. But most of these sleep interruptions are not being able to get to sleep right away. So in, in 2004, I had a very clear dream of the name, my pillow, and I wrote my pillow all over the house and, and connecting the Y and the P and, and you know, these logos and I'm going, that sounds really corny, you know, um, but I go, well, where's my pillow? You know, I mean, if you, it's hard for you to think back now because there's my everything and it was because of my pillow got big, everybody took up the my's, but my daughter came upstairs and there was, she looked and there were pieces of paper written all over and Lizzie says, uh, she gets a glass of water, she, I don't know, she's 11 years old maybe, and she said, what are you doing, Dad? And I go, I go, I'm gonna invent this pillow. And I, and I realized I hadn't even got the, you know, what, what it's gonna be made of or what it's gonna do. It's gonna be the best thing ever, I've seen it, and, and this is gonna be called my pillow. And she looks at all these pieces of paper, she goes, that's really random, Dad, and she went back downstairs. Well, then the kids said to their mother at the time, when's dad going to get over this pillow thing? And uh, he says, oh, it's just a phase. It'll be, it'll be over. And I wasn't, at that time, I wasn't doing anything. I'd sold my I'd little bar and restaurant. So my total focus was on this pillow now. Well, then I still had to figure out the material. So we tried over 94 different kinds of foams and fills to put in there. My one son, Darren, and I, who's now managing 1,100 or 1,200 employees of the manufacturing. That's what he does now. But he's like nine or 10 years old and every day we'd get home from school and we'd try different kinds of stuff on the deck and the foam would fly all over the neighborhood and we tried little machines to get to work and finally we get it and it worked. Once we had the pillows all made, we had mortgaged our house, everything, and we had no money left but we had like 300 pillows and I went into the first pillow, I walked into a, it was a bed, bath and beyond, I'll just say the name, in Bloomington, Minnesota, I go in there, I said, I got the best pillow ever. I said, this pillow is going to change, you know, change, you're going to sell more of this than anything. It helps this, helps you sleep, blah, blah, blah. And where, where's your buyer? Who's your buyer? Where's the manager? And he looks at me, he goes, you need to leave. And I'm going, the guy just had all this passion, you know? And I'm going, what do you mean I need to leave? I said, I want to talk to your buyer. And I learned right away. And I started calling on other stores and everybody, it was the same shutout. My brother-in-law's brother said, Mike, why don't you do a kiosk? And I said, what's that? How do you spell kiosk? And then we did this kiosk, and I had a little sign, a stencil, where I put on family-owned and operate. I colored in the, the stencil. And the other one I put, chiropractor recommended. And she goes, his then wife. We can't have this. She goes, someone can sue us. I said, 
I gave one to a chiropractor, our friend, you know, and he loves it, you know. But it was way far, you know, here's a mall and here's this in a mall. It just was almost too corny, you know what I mean? Almost too real. But I did, we did sell about 80 pillows. And the one day, obviously we lost, uh, I don't know, like $15,000 because it's very expensive to have a kiosk on November and December. And, but one guy, he came up and he said, hey, you have a, do you have a card? And I go, I don't have business cards. I, I go, oh, I'm all out. I said, here, and I gave him my number. And in January of that year, now kiosk was almost, you know, a complete failure, basically. I borrowed money from my ex-bookie to buy Christmas presents that year. And by the way, the reason he was my ex-bookie, he said, if you quit gambling, I'll borrow you money. I mean, that, I mean that's, uh, you know, he cared. <laughs> so this guy called me in January and he says, are you the guy that invented this pillow? The one guy I gave my phone number to. And I go, yeah. And he goes, this pillow changed my life. He says, it is a miracle. And he was all about that. I'm going, okay. And, he, and I'm excited hearing his, you know, not worrying about where I am at, that this is, I'm going, I was just so happy for him that it helped him. And he goes, I run the Minneapolis Home and Garden Show. Would you like a spot in there? And I go, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself right away, well, the kiosk didn't work. And I'm going, I go, well, maybe there's more people or something, you know? And I'm going, sure. Well, I didn't have money. And, and uh, so of course I had to borrow money to get into there. But then um, I go into that Home and Garden Show. But what I did is I got behind that booth. I could sell. And once I got behind her, it was, it was like, wow. And as I'm seeing people, they would literally come back the next day. So many people after that first day go, this is a miracle. And the same thing the guy said. Now I'm feeding off this passion and I'm just, it was like amazing where that I realized I could sell and I could sell and help people. And I sold out that four days, sold out. I was, and I'm going, wow, I can, this is where I'm going to be. I can support my family in spite of everybody turning me down. So I started doing home shows and fairs and got in the Minnesota State Fair. We blew it out of the park. We're still there. And as they say, the rest is history. But that's a tad bit blasé for this story. There were more trials to come. And the story of Mike Lindell, an American Dreamer story, as good as any we've done. Where will you hear the rest of the story here on Our American Stories? Turn to the life story of my pillow founder, Mike Lindell. I had this mask on, and probably from when from the divorce from childhood. I always had to have. That's when I got a hold of cocaine. It was so easy. I, everything I did, I had to be on cocaine to be able to talk to people and be able to have my confidence because I have this unworthiness inside of me that a lot of people have from you know from different things that have happened. It's an unworthiness, and now when I quit all my drugs and everything. That was, it's been quite a journey to where now, I mean, if you'd have told me I would be speaking in front of people or doing a commercial, I would have said, there is no way. In fact, I did a little human interest story once at a local station. I was still on drugs at the time, it was 2000. 
five or six, and this little public access station in Minneapolis, I came down there and she goes, uh, um, hey, this uh, host he was going on, she says, you want to go on his show right now? I want you, I go, I'm not going on the show. And she goes, and she goes, no, I want you just the way you are at the home shows. And I said, well, I'll come back in an hour because I want to go get my drugs, right? So, and she goes, no, go on right now. So she talks me into going on. Now, I was so petrified. Anybody that knew me said, you didn't have drugs, did you? And anybody that didn't know me said, what, is he on drugs? You know what I mean? Because I was so, like, I was all over the, I've never been so nervous. I was just couldn't even talk. And I never forgot that. And I'm going, well, if you'd have told me then, oh, you, you don't need all this and you're going to be an amazing, you know, speaker and all this stuff. I'm going, okay, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> And yet, there was one place in Mike's life where he didn't need the drugs. Where he was, home. Interesting with the home shows. Um, you know, I, I noticed one thing when I was behind that table and people came up. They had a reason for me to talk to them. Now, if I left behind the booth, I didn't have to have drugs. That was the only, it was like a phenomenon. Now, if I went out to smoke cigarettes outside the door and there's three people there, I wouldn't even go near them. I'd have to, because I wouldn't want to talk to them. You follow me? I wouldn't want to talk to them. So it'd be, when I was behind that, behind that table, talking about my pillow, I was in a, it was like a, you know, this amazing new thing where I could talk to people. And so I didn't need that. But obviously if I had cocaine, it would be, it would be you know, the same. But what I noticed, I could have the same passion with, with the cocaine or without, only in one spot behind that booth. Once I left that booth, I mean, it's like walking into another world. I'd walk, if I'm in the, I'm, and I have to talk to you and you're the next booth over and we're gonna talk about the weather, it's not happening. I'm clamming up, I'm avoiding, I'm going, hey, yeah, we'll talk to you later. I didn't know what to say. I was very socially stunted in that respect where I probably have the social skills of a 12-year-old. The home shows were the one place in Mike's life that was certain. It was his world, his pillow, not the uncertain world outside those doors where he was damaged by his parents, the drugs, and an unknown future. The shows were the place where he could feel that he was a positive force in this world. For me, I didn't have money. It didn't matter if I had money. I, would, I had a skill. I could go out and get money. If I borrowed money, I would pay you back double because I couldn't, I couldn't accept anything from anybody. I have another wound where I don't accept. I'm a giver, but I can't accept, which I've worked on. You know, I can't accept if we were gonna, if we were gonna go to lunch, guess what? I'd have a hard time you buying me lunch. That's the way, you know, I am, and that's a wound. That's actually, it's not a healthy thing either. It's able to accept is also uh, just as good as blessing someone. But I couldn't accept, especially back then. If you and I were doing drugs, I'm not taking some of your drugs, you're taking mine, you know. But to be able to be in that pillow show and to see people coming up, I just felt like God gave me the idea for the pillow in the first place. I'm going, wow. I wouldn't get depressed because of that. It was like a constant feed of people going, this is amazing. You know, I had this with my neck and this and I'm getting sleep now. I knew it was such a divine solution. I could have sat and just helped people forever and never got, I wasn't thinking like, okay, I'm gonna make millions of dollars. My thought was always, I'm gonna help millions of people. There's a difference. But to reach his fullest potential in helping people, there was just one person that he had to help first. 
himself. It was March of 2008 when he was brought to that intervention by the three biggest drug dealers of Minneapolis, of all people. That might have woken some people up, but not Mike yet. His Christian faith was always there, but it floated in and out of his heart. He grew up in a non-denominational Christian church and never had a real relationship with Christ. An interesting thing happened a week after that um, little intervention. I'm sitting all by myself at this place I was living, and I get a phone call. Now, remember, I, we talked about that little public access station. That's on, and that lady was a nice Christian lady. She would air it just every now and then, you know. And I would get phone calls of people wanting to buy pillows then, you know. So it was helping me out. And, and uh, well, that night, it's about 9.30 at night, and the phone rings. And I answer, and, and I'm up doing, you know, of course, I'm still up for probably two, three days. And she says, you know, I, I'm are you the guy i seen on Channel 6. And uh, I said, yeah. She says... Well, she says, God, God, I prayed and God told me to call you and say what you're doing is so important to the kingdom. Can we pray about it? And I said, okay, so we're praying. About a half hour goes by and she goes, I say, you know, goodbye. And I still have her name, by the way, for this, you know, the proof that this happened. About another hour goes by and another lady calls up. And this never had happened, okay? I really got one call to buy a pillow. And she calls up, she says, are you the guy seen on Channel 6 that invented this pillow? And I said, yeah, she goes, well, I haven't bought one, and, and, but she said, um, I was going to call and see if it's okay to pray with you. She said, and what you're doing is so important to, the, to God. And I'm going, okay. And so we pray for about an hour. That was a long one. And we prayed, and I talked to her. I had nothing. You know, I'm doing lines of cocaine. I wanted someone to talk to anyway, you know. And um, now three in the morning, this guy calls up, same night. And he calls up, and he answers, and he goes, I want to get you the guy on TV. And he was mad. And I go, yeah. He goes, I goes, let me get something clear here. I don't believe in God, but I keep getting this dream that I'm supposed to call you and tell you what you're doing is important to God. And he slams the phone down, very upset. Now about seven in the morning, the phone rings and, um, and I get on there, I go, you don't want to buy a pillow, you want to pray. And she goes, well, how did you know? And I'm going, it seems to be the thing tonight, you know? And, and uh, she ended up buying a pillow though too, <laughs> but, but we, so we prayed. So that day I'm going, wow, you know, and I knew that this platform, then my sister called me up a week later. She says, you got to quit standing in front of semis and think that God's going to pick someone else for this. He, he chose you for some, for a big calling. My sister is telling me this and I'm going, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I heard that last week, you know. <laughs> and, she, and she goes, you have a calling. And, this, and she said, this window's going to close and God's going to choose someone else. And you're, and, but then I'm kind of thinking, well, if I'm chosen for this, I can surely wait, you know. So I procrastinated through the year. And when, when we talk about bottom, for me, I wouldn't really have a money bottom because I've survived. You know, addicts are survivors. Any addicts that are out there, addictions are so, there's a lot of work. They're so hard to maintain them to hide your addiction, to get enough to make money, to get your drugs. I mean, there's just so, it's a lot of work. And most addicts are very smart. They're gonna get what they want. And when we come back, we're gonna hear the rest of this remarkable story. And I just love the line that I, I never got into this thing to make millions out of it, Mike Lindell said. I thought I'm going to help millions of people. And That's a big difference, he said, and it is. 
And of course, we've heard that from so many of our American dreamers. And that's where money comes from in this great country. When you help other people, they pay you for the service voluntarily. And then, of course, the faith element of this story is equally impressive, maybe even more. And you're going to hear the rest of this story, and it just keeps getting better, folks. Our American Dreamers segment, Mike Lindell's story, my pillow story, here on Our American Stories. Now let's return to the final portion of our American Dreamer series, Mike Lendell's story, the founder of MyPillow. It would get to December of 2008, and an interesting thing happened. My friend that had quit for three years, his name is Dick, and he was the first guy I ever did cocaine with in 1984. But he had been free of everything and had found Jesus for three years, and I hadn't seen him for a year. He used to be one of my dealers, all right? And now he's the only guy on the planet. You know, I've been to treatment centers and stuff through my life for different things, gambling, uh, drugs, alcohol, to get my license back. And he's the only one that could have came there where I could ask him questions where I would respect the answer because he's been there. Well, anyway, here comes Dick, and he walks in the door. He says, I said, Dick, what are you doing here? He says, God sent me out here. He says, what's going on? And I'm going, well, as long as you're here, I got a few questions for you. One of the first things I asked him is, is it boring? And that was a big question on addicts because a lot of addicts think with addictions, it's, it's because you're bored. It's not, you're hiding pain. You're hiding pain and you're doing it, you know, you're all that, whatever you're doing on the, for the high, it's just masking the pain. So I was very concerned about, is it boring? Then he left, that was in December of 08. Now, on January 16, 2009, I sat there and I'm going, okay, it was just like they used to have black and white TVs. When you turned them off, there'd be that little tiny dot and you turned it back on before that dot went out, right? And, and in my mind, I just knew that if I waited one more day, I, someone else would be chosen. And at the same time, I thought, you know what? This is going to help so many people because this is going to be, God's going to show the best comeback or the best with God all things are possible ever this story this story is going to be an amazing story I actually thought that the day I quit and so I prayed I said God I want to wake up in the morning and free me from all these addictions I don't ever want to feel them that you know the desire free me from the desire and uh, I said then I'm all yours I'll do this platform that was my thing so I'll do this you know whatever you want me to do so I wake up in the morning and it's gone it was a piece it was like wow I didn't have any money. I told my friends and family, let's all pool our money and do this infomercial dream I had. If nobody's gonna take my pillow, let's bring it right to the people. 
And I didn't know that infomercials don't work. It's just to get in box stores. You don't make money on the front end, but I nobody told me that. It's like an old Gilligan's Island episode. When Gilligan's up flying and the skipper goes, Gilligan, get down here, you can't fly. And Gilligan says, I can't, and he crashed to the ground. He was flying just fine until somebody told him he couldn't do it. Well, nobody told me I couldn't make this infomercial and couldn't make it, you know, amazing. In my head, I'm going, this is going to be the biggest ever. I'm telling my friends and family. Mike says that in a dream, there were specific numbers about this hypothetical infomercial success that came to him. I'm going to go to a million dollars a week or two million overnight. A wild success for something that pretty much was at nothing. But here we go. And someone introduced him to a so-called expert. I said, I have this dream in this infomercial with just a real audience. And I didn't want to be in. I didn't want to be in TV. I said, maybe somebody do it like we do at home shows. You know, just make it real. And she goes, no, you need an actor. And she says, then they wrote a script. The phones are lighting up like Christmas trees. I wanted to throw up. I said, this is not what I want. And she goes, I'm a professional and all this. But now the money kept going down. Almost all the money we had got from my friends and family that everyone put their life and just believe in me was almost, we were running out, we didn't even have anything. So, divine appointment, I met this other guy, so he's gonna do this infomercial. Well, it turned out I was gonna do it because he had seen so much passion, this guy says, you need to do it. Then all of a sudden they had wrote this script and I went to read it, they had this big professional guy had come in and he's sitting there and he's listening to me read off this script and then her and he goes, this is the worst disaster ever. This guy is terrible, okay, being me, you know. This is, it's, they didn't know what to do, so they, they decided they would go with no teleprompter. That Mike would try ad-libbing the whole infomercial. It will also become a hard surface, and it's no good. <laughs> what about this one? This one here is Ruined America. Um, oh my God. So we go in there to film it, and I was so scared. But once again, I got behind that counter, and it was like a shield between me and the audience where I come, my comfort zone, and I just went naturally or whatever. Now on October 7, 2011, I'm living in my sister's basement, and, and this aired at three in the morning, and all of a sudden this half-hour infomercial comes on, and I'm going, wow. I'm watching myself, you know, usually I would get so uncomfortable, but I'm going, I hadn't seen it yet. I had not seen it, I had not, I couldn't watch it, so this is the first time I watched it. And it was surreal. And it wasn't like, ooh, I'm on TV. It was like, wow, this is like divine. Wherever you set that, you get exactly what you need for your individual neck support, yep. okay? You can turn this any way you want. You can make little balloon animals out if you want. Okay, it's going to hold. It takes six pounds of pressure to hold that. It was just all natural. That It was like, it was real. It was what I wanted. I didn't want it to be a cookie cutter, you know, infomercial and we exploded. We went from five employees to 500 in 40 days. We were hiring people as fast as we could. We were working out of a little schoolhouse. We made our own call center because I, I had trained a call center in Connecticut. I had trained them because I take customer service so seriously. I called on the second day. I said, yeah, what's in that pillow? The guy goes, I don't know, Google it. I fired him on the spot. I was so upset. and. And we made our own call center in a little schoolhouse. We put everybody, my friends, everybody came in and we took phones through the night. 
And I look back now and I say, everybody got their pillows in time for Christmas. I mean, we, we were making them, hiring people, teaching them how to sew. Can you sew? Yeah, here. They go, Mike, you need to be CEO. I go, that sounds horrible. Don't they just take money? And then I, and then I go, we need an HR department. I go, that really sounds bad. I mean, all these things, I just wanted to make pillows, you know? And we took in millions of dollars over the next six months. But the experts continued to tell him that his way was stupid. They're going, did you make this ad? This is this is terrible. Did you write this yourself? We can do so much better, blah, blah, blah. And uh, now it's the number one ad in history. I look it up. I'll put it up against any ad ever. Mike's ad-libbed infomercials that the American people have responded to because he's genuine and real are now selling over 75,000 MyPillow products a day. And people said, oh, Mike, you can't make a pillow here in the United States. you got to make it overseas. I said, no, you're never going to get a patent on a pillow. And all these naysayers, and I fought every single thing. It was a constant fight. And the infomercial finally fatigued. And when it did fatigue in the summer of 14, I thought, you know, it's over. I mean, it was just scary. We were, we were within two days of going under. Uh, during that time, and I, I had fell away from God. I didn't, uh, I mean, I was like, when I took in all that money, I'm going, wow, this is, you know, I kind of kind of forgot about the platform that he had given me, and everything started to just dry up, okay? And in the summer of 14, I met Kendra. And I noticed something with her that she had that I didn't have. It was, it was like this relationship with Jesus. And I wanted that. I really wanted that relationship or whatever she had. And on February 18th, 2017 is when Jesus showed up and I had this personal relationship now. I'm going, wow, now I have what Kendra has. Now I'm doing speaking all over the country where I have the same passion for the pillow as now I have for Jesus. And that's powerful. Why did the relationship finally come on this particular day. Operation Restored Warrior is actually for veterans. You go there, it's a five-day thing where you're, uh, you give your life to Jesus. And, you know, I was invited, like, you know, I'm not a veteran, and I'm going, why? But they all prayed, and we're going to invite, we want, you know, God told them that we want Mike Lindell to come to this. And here I'm there, I'm going, I'm not, what am I doing here with these veterans? You know, these guys have stories that are 10 times worse than any story I have or any wounds. The wounds I heard there in their heart, and Jesus showed up. I mean, I can't even tell you, it was the most divine. I'm walking out of there, I'm going, wow, this is what I was missing. This personal relationship where you're walking with him instead of just, you know, okay, I'm going to go to church and believe in God. And, you know, before all those times now I look back, all these chapters and all these things of my life, for me, it took all these things because I'm going, this doesn't happen unless it's of God. That the troubled son of divorced parents, the crack addict, the twice divorced father, the near bankruptcies, all of these trials and tribulations must have happened for a reason. That the odds of someone with this story selling 75,000 pillow products a day, meeting with the President of the United States in the White House, and sharing his Christian faith 
before a crowd of over 60,000 in an NFL stadium after a life of fearing public speaking. This could have only happened for one reason and by one man. God's blessed me with this company. That ain't Mike Lindell. And what a great story about entrepreneurship and faith molded into one. Our American Dreamers series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. We've done dozens of these American Dreamers series. This may be one of the best. Mike Lindell's story, my pillow story, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and on this day we're celebrating not just our country but we're also celebrating those who've chosen to come to America in spite of political and geographic barriers. We're going to hear a story from Faith and we've been sending her to the Villages, Florida for some time now, a retirement community with over 150,000 residents. Residents from every type of background. On her most recent trip she talked to a woman named Sylvia. Sylvia starts out talking about why she originally didn't want to move to the villages. My name is Sylvia Lawrence. I used to be Sylvia Galova. How did you end up here? My husband, uh, he was on a church choir, and somebody on a church choir was talking about the villages. Villages, oh, you know, this and that. And uh, my husband described that to me, and I said, oh, but I don't like any kind of rules. I don't know if I would like that. You know, it seems it's too rigid. I hate dogmas. I can't stand that. Yes, I'm always opposed to any rules. Sylvia is very different from most of the other villagers I've talked to since I've been there. You may have noticed her thick accent. But one of the important things she mentioned was not liking rules. Why is that? Sylvia escaped from communist Czechoslovakia after the Soviets had invaded her country in 1968. But the initial communist invasion started when she was very young. In 53, the communists absolutely confiscated everything. Uh, my, all, my family owned um, lots of properties, restaurants, uh, stores, uh, cars. I remember as a four-year-old, five-year-old, I don't remember now exactly, uh, watching the commissars coming uh, and taking our cars. My grandma had this huge black car. She had a chauffeur because she didn't know how to drive. Uh, Then my father had this sports car, (laughs) the English sports car, and my mother had just a plain, uh, you know, middle-sized car. But the commissars came and took all three cars. And I remember as a child, watching from the window and saying, hmm, I wonder where they are taking that. (laughs) But uh, I remember as a child, the commissars would come at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning uh, and looking for stuff, uh, you know, jewelry, uh, pictures, uh, 
for codes and they would just confiscate that. It didn't mean ma much to me then, but and my grandma used to say, uh, she lived with us, ah, it's just stuff. I'll make more money and buy you stuff. <laughs> so I grew up uh, and went to school. I was ostracized because I was from the rich family. They, and the teachers would say to me, you are no good. And I, I remember thinking, why? What did I do? And I couldn't comprehend that I'm not good because I, I, I am from a former rich family. But again, my grandma always stood by me and she said to me, whatever you have in your head, the communists cannot take away from you. Be the best you can be. Reach for the stars. And that's what I did. I was, I, I, hard, I worked very, very, very hard in school. And uh, I did well. Um, my grandma was a very big influence on me and she's been dead for 43 years but there is not one day that I don't think about her. Then things began to change, seemingly for the better. Then around 66, 67, the situations became a little bit better. We used to have a little bit of a freedom, for example, freedom of press and freedom of expression. And it was all thanks to the president, who was Dubček, D-U-B-C-E-K. And he didn't want us to stop being a communist country. All he really wanted, a little bit of freedom. But in August 21, uh, 1968, I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and the news was don't panic, stay indoors, the Soviet invaded your country. We were in total disbelief because we did not believe we did anything wrong. All we were asking was for a little bit of freedom. But the Soviets, our Soviet army came and invaded Czechoslovakia. They also invaded Poland. How old were you? Uh, I was 18. So Sylvia and her mother knowing and experiencing the evils of communism, decided to plan their escape, which was no easy task. That was it for me because I felt there is no future for me anymore. You know how 18-year-old, we are sort of, at that time, I think I was selfish. I only thought about myself and I just was very forceful. I said, I'm going to leave, I'm going to escape. And at that time, because of the Soviet army, and you know, nobody really was guarding the borders and nobody really knew what they were doing. However, the old rule was that before you can leave Czechoslovakia, you need a permission from the Minister of Interior um, Affairs. And then you needed a visa to go to country of your choice. So, Okay, we, my mother and I went to the Minister of Internal Affairs and stood in line with our passports and all of a sudden somebody shouting, the Soviets are coming, the soldiers are going to be here. If they f catch you with your passport, they're going to take you and maybe you'll end up a couple days in jail. My mother said, let's don't run outside, let's go and run and hide in the building. 
So <laughs> we went in a cellar and uh, I spent a whole night just huddling in a, a cellar with my mother. Uh, luckily, I was <laughs> young and very skinny, so in the morning we still didn't want to use the front door to exit because they were going to ask us, you know, what were you doing here this early in the morning? So there was a tiny little window in the cellar room. So I crawled through it and my mother was always tiny, so she, she fitted uh, through the window too. And we just pretended like, you know, we are on a stroll here. So we were not stopped and we kept our passports. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of Sylvia and her mom's escape from communist Czechoslovakia. More after these messages, Faith's visit to the villages and Sylvia and her story again here on Our American Stories. Our American stories, and we continue with Sylvia's story. In the last segment, we learned about her her hatred of rules and where it came from. We learned that quickly. And how Czechoslovakia, notice how they vilified the wealthy first, because then the rest of the folks could hate the wealthy. But then it was the upper middle class, then it was the middle class. And pretty soon, the communists had confiscated everything. So when you hear the 1% getting vilified, just remember what's really going on. But let's go back to the story and to Sylvia's story and faith at the villages. I cannot imagine how scary that must have been, but they were determined to still flee from the country. However, her grandmother was not fit to take the trip. So after the night of staying in the cellar, Sylvia and her grandmother had an important conversation. We came home and at that time we were living in an apartment that had a very long, dark hallway. And my grandma was on one side and, you know, as an 18-year-old, I'm saying, Grandma, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I cannot live here anymore. And my grandma turned around and said, yes, that's a good decision. And I, I said, why isn't she saying something? Why isn't she saying, don't go? Or, you know, and I think she was crying because she wanted me to go. And that was the hardest, hardest happening to me. And your grandmother, she, you said she was crying. Was that because she knew you needed to go. I think she she felt it's better for me if I leave. But of course, she was the one who raised me because my mother worked at the university. And like I said, my father was architect, always working somewhere else. Uh, so I was raised by my grandma and we were extremely, extremely close. But I think she felt for me to have a better life is to let me go. And I never saw her again. 
I think she was just totally unselfish because I think if I would have known that she was crying and that she didn't want me to leave, perhaps I wouldn't have left. But she, she hid that from me because she wanted me to go. She wanted me to have a better life. And the communist regime actually fell but 19 years later. So, you know, I was 18 when I left, but to living under the communism for 19 more years, I don't think that was acceptable for her or for me. What are other things that you remember your grandmother telling you? <laughs> she always told me to make friends with smarter people than I am, <laughs> because you can always learn from them. My grandma was an extremely strong woman who, who would never let herself be defeated. You know, no matter what came, what the communists dealt, you know, they took her two stores, her two beautiful restaurants, her apartment building complex that she had. They took our home where I was raised and it never faced her. She said, that's okay. I'll, I'll make more money and we'll, we'll have something else. The example she gave me was the one and I'm still living by it because she was an outstanding woman. And I'm really happy that I had somebody like that in my life. Too bad my sons never met her, but I've been telling them the stories about her. So <laughs> I hope something stuck. She always said, you see the stars there? Reach for them. And when I, you know, she always asked me, what do you want to be? You know, what do you want to study? And she always said, it doesn't matter. Whatever you study, it will be okay. She would never say, you cannot be a doctor or you cannot, uh, you know, do this. She would say, oh, go get the stars. You know, they can take your jewelry, you know, but they cannot take whatever you have in your, you know, your brain. They cannot take that. So basically she was telling me to learn every day of your life, uh, life, just learn, learn, learn. So after saying goodbye to her grandmother, Sylvia and her mother took their chances for a better life and headed toward the border, not knowing what would happen to them. So we left, my mother and I left, and uh, to this day, I do, and we went by train, and to this day, I don't know how it happened, because the Soviet soldiers came and questioned everybody. And I spoke Russian because everybody had to, in schools you had to uh, take Russian as a second language. But to this day, I don't know what I was saying to that soldier, but he let us go. So. I don't know what happened, but we ended up in Vienna, Austria. We had absolutely no money. We had absolutely nothing to where to stay or how to feed ourselves. <laughs> so um, we went to a convent. We also spoke German because that was my third language that I had to take. And they said, okay, you can stay with us, but you have to work for your uh, food. And <laughs> it was really funny because I was, all my young adult life, I was such a spoiled, 
child. I never, I never cooked. I never did dishes. I never cleaned floors or washed clothes. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I am working, <laughs> you know, cleaning floors for my food. <laughs> but I did it, you know, because uh, I always felt you have to do what you have to do. And so we stayed uh, in a convent for eight and a half months, uh, working for our lodging and for our food. And the nuns were very, very kind to us. Of course, the work was hard, but the food was good. <laughs> the nine months in Austria were very, very difficult, very difficult. And it not even the food or the lodging or whatever, it was the what will happen tomorrow. Not knowing was, was really, really difficult. You know, I was 18, but my mother was 48, and it was extremely difficult for her because she left, you know, her, her job at the university, her friends, and um, she had a harder time learning the foreign language, right? She was older. She was older, so it was very difficult for her. So not only my grandma sacrificed herself, but also my mother. Of course, they could not stay at the convent forever. So they first attempted to get into the U.S. After eight and a half months, I, uh, we were trying to immigrate to U.S., but the U.S. did not recognize us for political asylum. So uh, they said, well, you have to go to a, like, something like a work camp and wait there. So my mother said, I'm not going to do that with an 18-year-old girl. So at that time, the Canada opened the borders, and they would work. They were welcoming immigrants. Uh, so uh, that's what we did. I we ended up in Montreal, Canada, and at that time, the Montreal was a little bit separatist. Uh, however, uh, I didn't speak English and I didn't speak French at that time. They said the immigration said to us if you start taking French lessons, we are going to pay you $25 a week. My goodness gracious, $25 a week to me was like million dollars. <laughs> so I gladly said, oh yeah, I will learn French, no problem. So all we had to do is just show up downtown. They had buses for us. They took us to school where we had French speakers teaching us I spent four and a half months every day learning French. So after the four and a half months, I was quite fluent. <laughs> so now she lived in Canada and got a very special job. She was able to become a tour guide for an expo called Man and His World, giving VIP tours, even giving tours for the Czechoslovakian section. But because she had fled the country illegally, she needed a bodyguard just in case someone wanted to take her back to the country. And when we come back, the rest of the story, the rest of Sylvia's story, and I had to fight back tears listening to her account of Grandma just holding it back and sending her little girl off. What an act of love. And just a beautiful, beautiful story. And by the way, a little history lesson for those of us who don't know the ravages of communism and bad government. More of Sylvia's story, Faith's story at the villages after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. And Sylvia and her mother had arrived in Canada, and they'd begun their new lives. But how is it that she got into the United States? Let's return to the story. In the fall and spring, she went to school and worked at Man in His World during the summer, which is where she so happened to meet her man. One day, after a really hard day, I had lots of VIP tours, I was sitting at the end of the pavilion minding the guest book. You know, that was like, you can relax now. All of a sudden, I see this tall, very, very, very handsome guy staring at me. And, you know, I, I was used to it. You know, guy, I had uniform and, you know, and uh, so this guy comes and starts speaking English. Uh, I said, I don't understand English. So he starts communicating with his hands and he said he would like my address because he wants to send me a postcard from Pittsburgh. So I did that. Three months later he came back. I saw him one more time, so three times altogether, and I married him. I didn't speak English and he didn't speak French. So. I'm still married to him 46 years later and three sons. Now I speak English. (laughs) So, but we are are together, we are happy, and uh, that's how I ended up in America. And I absolutely love America. I think America is the best country ever. I'm very, very grateful that I I had such an opportunity from a little Slovak country. to come here and enjoy uh, everything America has to offer. I made sure that three of my sons, that my sons, three of them, we travel extensively because I wanted them to know different cultures and different people. And, but every time we would come back to US, I would tell him, get on your knees and thank God that you were born in this country. So you married someone after seeing them three times? Yes. I'm not really speaking. Were you scared? Of course, of course. Why'd you do it? The the hardest part was already done. The hardest part was was leaving the country. I thought after that I can do anything. You were married and you didn't know English. Right. I mean what was that like? That was funny because we were still having arguments. (laughs) My husband he would force me into speaking English. He would give me these jobs, like call the water company and ask them about how many gallons do we use a day or something like that. And I would sit by the phone with a stomach ache, but I would still do it. And it wasn't easy, he would take me to parties and I, I, I just didn't know how to speak to people. Uh, the people would say, oh, you are, she must be really stupid because she's sitting in a corner. But it was because I didn't speak the language. You know, that's a human nature. If they don't understand something, maybe you don't really find out what's going on. Yeah, that's true. It's easier that way. Experiencing what she had, Sylvia wanted to make sure her sons understood what it means to live in America. She made many sacrifices when she fled. And although we know that she left her grandmother back home, 
She also left her father. My father, uh, my father was an architect, but his heart was broken because he was an artist also, and he wanted to build colorful buildings with lots of windows, and of course that was not permitted in, in the communist regime. So I never really knew him as well uh, because he was always gone as a punishment. I, I didn't see him when I was leaving, so I didn't say goodbye to him. And uh, the communication between my grandma and my father was very sketchy, very seldom because we were afraid that if they get letters from U U.S. or Canada, they will be punished. But then I found out that he was uh, seriously ill with cancer. So I called the hospital and I explained the situation that I'm his daughter and I am living in the U.S. And I asked the doctor who was uh, taking care of my father if he is okay with me talking to him because he could, the doctor could be punished by allowing somebody from U.S. talking to his patient. But he said, no, I will. I will let your father talk to you. Uh, but my father was, I guess, in so much pain and not really, he didn't understand what was going on because I said, hello, father, this is your daughter. And he said, I have no daughter. And that was the last I heard from him. He died two weeks later. So, uh, you know, life is not, not easy, but uh, that's the only life we have, so we have to make the best out of everything that happens to us. He didn't even remember her. Although she left for a much better life, and indeed got one, that did not mean that leaving was easy. So, what exactly are Sylvia's thoughts towards those who may not appreciate the U.S. the way that she does? You see, the, the problem with America, they, they're afraid of, some people are afraid to fail. And why? You, sh you could fail. It, it, if you learn something from your mistakes or from, from your failure, that's okay. Just pick up and start again. And I think everybody here is just, you know, they, they don't want to work hard sometimes. They just want a good job, a lot of money. Well, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> you have to work hard. You cannot have money if you don't do anything for it. Well, because for you, failure would have been basically, you know, being caught as you were trying to escape. The worst thing already happened to me, so... What else can happen, you know? Sylvia has had an interesting life, to say the least. And now she has settled down in the Villages, Florida. So, what exactly does she do these days? I realize that basically they give you all sorts of opportunities to do this or that, or if you don't want to, that's okay too. And I like that because I love dancing. Again, going back to my grandma. She believed that females must be very graceful. So I started with ballet at age three. I was dancing all my life. So that, that is totally amazing that right now I'm dancing. My son thinks I'm really crazy by doing this, but that's okay. I'm dancing until I, I cannot. <laughs> 
it always came back to her grandmother, the person who told her to reach for the stars, no matter the circumstance. Thank you, Sylvia. I know this was an emotional story to share. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories reporting to you from the Villages, Florida. And great job as always, Faith. And, you know, you really did get to meet the grandmother. I mean, the grandmother ends up being the star of this piece. I mean, Sylvia is fabulous, but the grandmother, be still my heart. And by the way, the sons that she said never got to meet her grandma, their grandmother. Oh, they, the great-grandmother. Oh, they did. They did in countless and endless stories about their great-grandmother and her grandmother. This is Lee Habib, Sylvia's story, Faith's story, the two of them coming together, total strangers, to learn a little about each other and about the world. This is Our American Stories. is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show. History, the arts, sports, and of course your stories as well. Stories about love and loss. The stories of hardworking Americans across this country in their voices. And of course you can send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org We'll edit them down and we'll play them. We love to hear from you and we love to hear about you and your lives. One of our favorite subjects is leadership, and we talk about it a lot, at least once a week. And some of our favorites, well, Pete Pace's remarkable story, graduates from Annapolis, finds himself in a place called Vietnam. And the question is, how do you lead men who are older than you and have been in the field of combat? And Pete Pace walks some students through that conundrum. Bear Bryant and John Wooden, we did hours on those great leaders in the sports field and many more. And two of our favorites also, Ed Renzi's story. He's a CEO of McDonald's, and he started at the minimum wage there. And Faye Vincent's life and his leadership lessons. He was the commissioner of Major League Baseball and also the president of Columbia Pictures. Two very different worlds. At the top of his game, at the top of his field, in both sports and the arts. And this next segment is on Mike Levin, a friend, a business leader, and just a really, really good guy. And it's hard for many men to say that about other men because so many guys, well, we're a mixed bag. But Mike, a mensch, uh, if he doesn't mind me saying so. And my goodness, a lifetime of leadership in the hotel business from growing and expanding the Holiday Inn Express brand to, in the last episode of his career, growing and expanding the remarkable Las Vegas Sands brand. And that was in the years somewhere around the mid-2000s. 
Mike now is the chairman and chief executive officer of the Georgia Aquarium. And my goodness, if you haven't been, it's one of the greatest aquariums in the world, maybe the greatest aquarium in the world, and built in large measure by the generosity of Bernie Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot. And we talked to Mike uh, on and off about him performing a talk he's given now and then to young people and to old people and in between about life leadership lessons he learned. And here's Mike performing 54 Things I Learned in 54 Years. As I reach this much maligned place in the world called retirement, it's not only with satisfaction and awe, but with trepidation. Even today, I wondered for these past months what I might say in these few minutes allotted to summarize a body of work which, in fact, represented the great majority of my life. Unable to summarize quickly, I thought I would simply speak in short sentences what I've learned since the first day on February 1, 1961. When I took a decamp bus from North Arlington, New Jersey to the Port Authority bus terminal in Manhattan, to the shuttle to Grand Central Station, and walked through a long tunnel to my seat in the sales department of the Hotel Roosevelt. So here are 54 things I learned, one for every year, not in chronological order. I learned that brains are no substitute for hard work, that every single employee is a human being that deserves dignity and care, that the customer has a voice and should be listened to, that the customer is not always right, but is always the customer, that the boss is not always right, but is always the boss, that to ask why rather than to accept an order is okay, that you make mistakes and that is the best way to learn, that to listen is better than talking, that people don't always do the right thing, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't, that honesty and truth sometimes get you into trouble, but it's okay because in the end you will win. To tell the truth because you never have to remember what you said. That every person, no matter their color, gender, sexual orientation, or religion, has equal opportunity and should be provided that, but should work to maintain those rights. That people everywhere care about their family, their loved ones, and their country. That international business is not a mystery. That the more diverse you make yourself, the easier it is to understand others. That tolerance and patience gains respect from others and self-respect as well. That people need explanations of why they should do things you want them to do. That participation in industry activities is not only a giving experience to others, but is a learning experience for yourself. That this is a human industry where you can touch thousands and build friendships. That competitors are not enemies. That the balance sheet of life is more important than the balance sheet of the business. That Wall Street is just a street, not a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. That as a young person, you learn a lot, but even as an old person, you still much learn. That when you have to fire someone, never take their dignity away. That if you have a family, 
Don't miss your kids' events. They grow up too fast. That you can balance your life and be successful. That no matter how much money you make, someone always makes more. That no matter how much money you make, someone always makes less. That charity and giving are more rewarding than making and taking. That professionalism means not perfection, but the skill to be successful. That real peace for you financially comes when you have no debts. That the debts you have should be to people or institutions that provided your values. That corporations are not an end in themselves, they are a means to an end. That when you are mistreated, never lower your standards to behave like the one who did it. That politics exists everywhere, not only in government. That being political is a strategy that works sometimes, but not always. That doing a favor for someone else is better than getting one from someone else. That the Bible and Shakespeare teach you more than economics or corporate finance. That democracy is a tough strategy and a difficult system, but seeing many others is still the best system invented. That capitalism provides the best opportunities, but it is not perfect and not always fair. That reading biographies teaches you lessons you cannot learn by yourself. That returning a phone call to someone you haven't heard from in years should be a joy, not a burden. That early to bed and early to rise helps to get the job done. That exercise, eating right, and dressing properly are strategies for good health and a good life. That bad things happen to good people, but that good people handle them much better. That passion for a sports team is a good relief from the normal tensions of life, but remember, it's only a game. That you should enjoy every obligation, because with obligations done, responsibility is earned and success follows. That don't sweat the small stuff is a bad strategy. That your life is made up of small stuff, so live with it. That winning isn't everything, it's how you play the game that counts. That the apple of temptation is always there and you will be tested often. Be yourself and to thine own self be true should be written on every desk. That you should be proud to be an American. And lastly, number 54, that the best word in the English language is love. Now it's two years since I've done this speech, and I've learned number 55. Number 55 is, no matter what you have done well in your life, oftentimes you will not get credit for it. And thanks so much for that, Mike. And my goodness, my favorites to tell the truth because you never have to remember what you said. Brains are no substitute for hard work. My goodness, I've seen that play out in my life and friends' lives over and over again. That no matter how much you make, that is money, someone always makes more. And then no matter how much money you make, someone always makes less. And that the Bible and Shakespeare teach you more than economics or corporate finance. So glad to hear that from somebody who's 
plied the trades and business his whole life. And lastly, the best word in the English language is love. And to hear that from a, a businessman and a friend, well, that's why he is a friend. And that's Mike Levin, who spent his life leading in the hotel business right up to one of the biggest and most well-known brands in the country, the Las Vegas Sands. And now, in retirement, still running things, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the Georgia Aquarium. Take your family, take friends to this remarkable place. You'll just smile for a day. This is Lee Habib, Mike Levin's 54 Things I Learned in 54 Years. In the end, his story here on Our American Stories.